0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all very much for coming along uh, to this public lecture organized by the LSE International Relations Department. And it's, uh, My name is Chris Hughes. I'm head of the International Relations Department. It's a great pleasure to introduce my colleague, Professor Fawaz Gurgis, who has been with us for many years and has established a reputation as one of the world's leading experts on the Middle East and certainly the school's le- leading expert on the politics of the Middle East. Um, he's spent many years doing field work on the ground. Of course, he has languages, and so he's a real scholar who, who knows the region from the grassroots up, and that's reflected in all his work. Um, he, we're really here because of his, his new book um, on ISIS, which I think will be on sale afterwards, will it? Outside If people hopefully will be interested in buying a copy. It's, it's a fantastic book. I've just received it and started reading it and it, it, it's, it's, it's up to date. It's full of detail. Uh, extremely informative. It's I think your sixth book is it on the Middle East? I think number six. Yeah, I was counting them. And, uh, um, so it, it, Fowles is a prolific writer and he's um, uh, got this um, deep knowledge of the region. Sixth book. Highly recommended. Uh, he's going to talk about the book today, uh, probably for about 45 minutes, and then we'll have the usual Q&A. Now, I have to say some formalities. The first is, please turn off your phones. Um, and the other is, uh, this will be on Twitter, yeah, hashtag LSE So, on that note, uh, assuming you've turned off your phones, i hand over to you, Fawaz. And if you'd like to... Hear stand there, that would be great. Thank you and
1: welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Uh, Good evening. I want to thank all of you for taking the time from your busy schedule and and coming here tonight. It it means a lot to us, all of us. Uh, And I also want to thank the school events and the Department of IR, and in particular Chris, uh, for taking the time from your family annual walk to chair this uh, uh, lecture. It really means a lot to me. Thank you. Uh, uh, I want to start by saying that if there is one particular point I really would like you to keep, uh, and please don't forget this particular point before you leave the school, is that I dare any one of you to leave without purchasing a copy of the book. (laughs) (laughs) Books uh, need nourishment, people. And uh, we rely on you, on all of us. So please, if you're interested in this particular book is not just about ISIS. It's really about the social and political conditions that have given rise to the rise of one of the most important social and religious movements uh, in the world, probably today. Uh, there is nothing mysterious. Uh, about the spectacular resurgence of ISIS. Nothing mysterious about this organization. When I travel to the Middle East, in many parts of the world, people have these conspiracies that somehow American-made or Israeli-made or Saudi-made or Turkish-made. It's all nonsense. Uh, We know the drivers behind the rebirth of ISIS. Uh, We know the conditions that have given rise uh, to ISIS in the past uh, few years and when I say ISIS as you know uh, multiple names uh, have been used uh, for the so called Islamic State uh, ISIS ISIL, uh, Daesh uh, the, uh, the organization itself uses the term al-Dawla al-Islamiyya al-Dawla al-Islamiyya is the Islamic State that's it uh, and when I say there is nothing mysterious about the spectacular resurgence of ISIS. ISIS is a different name for al-Qaeda in Iraq. You all know this. But ISIS did not really parachute from the sky into basically the, the killing fields of the Middle East. ISIS has been with us since 2003. ISIS is an extension of al-Qaeda in Iraq that was born after the American uh, Uh, led invasion and occupation of the country. Uh, And as you know, again, I I, I don't have the time to really uh, talk about the context because the context is very important. Uh, That before the U.S. led invasion and occupation of Iraq, there had existed no Salafi jihadist group in Iraq. Never. Uh, Saddam Hussein, the late leader of al-Qaeda, never tolerated the presence of any organized opposition be it secular, be it Islamist, or Salafi jihadist. Uh, any particular organized opposition was crushed by Saddam Hussein by the Basis regime. And the Basis regime, as you know, is a secular, nationalist, authoritarian ideology that was basically toppled by the Americans in 2003. Uh, if you ask me, forget the politics, I hope we, we're beyond that. If you ask me, What's the most important variable in the rise of Al-Qaeda in Iraq and, by extension, the rise of ISIS? I would say it's the U.S.-led invasion and occupation of Iraq. It's not a political statement. Why? By destroying Iraqi institutions, the American invasion created a rupture in Iraq. It destroyed the institutions. It dissolved the army. It created a political system-based in, in uh, Arabic, on al muhasasa its ethnic and religious distribution of the spoils of power in Iraq. It also exacerbated and aggravated a sectarian divide in the country, an ethnic divide between the majority Shi'at and the uh, minority Sunni Arabs and also the uh, Sunni uh, Kurds. Uh, and in this particular sense, not just al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda and other anti-hegemonic groups basically uh, were able to depict themselves as part of the resistance, the armed resistance against the Americans in the post-2003. What al-Qaeda in Iraq, just to give you an idea, Abu Mas'ab al-Zarqawi, this name might be familiar to you, to most of you, Abu Mas'ab al-Zarqawi was the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq when he went to Iraq in 2002-2003, he had probably fewer than 30 or 40 men, part of al-Qaeda, most of them that they escaped Afghanistan after the U.S. Uh, invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, uh, 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 October 2001. Fewer than 30 fighters between 2003 and 2006, al-Qaeda in Iraq, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi was able to, bid, to build a potent army numbering thousands, give and take, we don't know the exact numbers, between five and 10,000 fighters. And it's not just about fighters. Abu Mas'ab al-Zarqawi and the Iraqi contingent were able to insert themselves, blend with rebellious Sunni communities who basically stood up and decided to resist the American invasion, the invasion that was seen as unjust and illegal. That the Sunni communities in Iraq Again, I don't have the time to explain why the Sunni community, the Sunni Arab community, perceived the American invasion as part of a global campaign to empower their Shia uh, rival, and together with Iran, Iran being a Shiat state. So the Sunni community welcomed al-Qaeda uh, with open arms and provided a social base, or Hadina Sha'biyah in Arabic, for al-Qaeda uh, in Iraq, and between 2003 and 2006, thousands, again we don't know the numbers, all the numbers that are provided by the Americans and the Western intelligence services are really based on kind of estimates. We think that about 10,000 fighters tried to come to Iraq and challenge the American and the coalition of the willing. Syria was the way station by which most of the fighters, most of the young men traveling from Tunisia, Algeria, Libya, and the West came to Iraq. In the same way, that Turkey now served as a way station for most of the foreign fighters that have crossed to Syria between two thousand eleven and the present and again you know the context I mean the context of why so many young men and women decided to go to Iraq and attack the Americans I mean Iraq became a rallying cry for tens of thousands probably hundreds of thousands of young Arab and Muslim men who believed that the United States was basically trying to subjugate, dominate an Arab and Islamic country. It was a reminder of the history of colonialism and what have you. In fact, if it was not for the American, the American invested a great deal of hard work and energy trying to prevent the coming of young men and women from all over the world. In fact, the migration of young men and women to Iraq would have probably uh, exceeded the migration of young men to Afghanistan between 1980 1980 and 1989, during the Soviet invasion of Iraq. This tells you about the importance, how the American-led invasion resonated in the imagination of man and woman in that part of the world, in the, uh, and the Islamic... Uh. So Abu Mas'ab al-Zarqawi, the leader of al-Qaeda, really found a very hospitable environment. In fact, the irony is that Iraq was al-Qaeda to lose, And Al-Qaeda did lose Iraq. Uh, And this is the the story, is is that uh, the lack of political imagination, the lack of political vision, uh, the monstrous miscalculation, the inability to see the world in any kind of, I mean, political terms. Uh, And here, a particular point, conceptual point, I want to highlight, even though Al-Qaeda in Iraq was an extension of the Salafi jihadist movement, the global jihadist movement, Al-Masab al was part of Al-Qaeda, the central organization. Al-Qaeda in Iraq had a different world of view and different tactics than Al-Qaeda Central. As you well know, Al-Qaeda Central, I mean, the world of view of Al-Qaeda Central and the strategy was on what? On the far enemy. The far enemy, the United States and European powers, were the main target of Al-Qaeda Central. Its conceptual world of view focused on the far enemy, on the Americas. I've written a book on on the far enemy, why jihad went global by Cambridge University Press in 2005. Where al-Qaeda in Iraq, major focus was on the near enemy as opposed to the far enemy. Even though al-Qaeda in Iraq was part of the movement, but Abu Mas'ab al-Zaqawi had an obsession. And the obsession was the Shiites and Iran. What I'm trying to say conceptually, al-Qaeda in Iraq was an identity-driven hyper-movement as opposed to being a global really Salafi jihadists that focuses on the fights between or the confrontation between uh, the West and the world of Islam. And, and there was a major, in fact, uh, Abu Mas'ab al-Zarqawi, the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq, he fired the first shot in the civil war that has been raging between al-Qaeda central and ISIS, al-Qaeda in Iraq, ISIS now, because of this particular struggle this fierce rivalry for the supremacy within the jihadist movement. Two world of views. Even though they both subscribe to the same ideology, they want to establish Islamic states, they want to destroy the existing uh, nation state and establish a different kind of authority. Uh, Al Qaeda's central focus is on the Americans and the Europeans. They believe that the only way, the only way they can level the playing field with the near enemy, Arab and Muslim leaders, is to expel the Americans from the heart of Arabia. That's the only way that they realize they can defeat the Americans. What they're trying to do is to make American, the American military investment very costly by attacking Americans. So America basically packs up and leaves. While Abu masab al-Zarqawi in Iraq, his strategy was very simple. Thousands of suicide attacks against the Shiites in order to really plunge Iraq into all-out sectarian strife. Again, you remember that by 2006, the year in which the Americans killed Abu Mas'ab al-Zarqawi, Iraq was on the brink of all-out war, uh, civil war, sectarian war between the Shiites and the Sunnis. Uh, it was in 2000, 2005, 2006, that really the future of Al-Qaeda in Iraq was determined. And guess what? By the same Al-Hadina al by the same social base. The Iraqi Sunnis came to realize that the bloody Al-Qaeda in Iraq has its own agenda. That it was not really concerned about liberating Iraq from the Americans, it was concerned about establishing its own fiefdom, Salafi Jihadist fiefdom in Iraq. And they turned against Al-Qaeda in Iraq with vengeance. Between 2006 and 2008, Al-Qaeda in Iraq was defeated, Not by the American surge, as you heard, but by the sons of Iraq, by the Sunni Iraqis, tribes who stood up and decided to basically get rid of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. The Sunnis in Iraq, they were very much interested in maximizing their power. They were very much interested in basically having uh, bargaining power with the Shiites and the Americans. They did not really want to civil war in Iraq. So it was really this particular, again, uh, uh, the Sunnis in Iraq played a major part by 2008 in pushing Al-Qaeda in Iraq out of the major Sunni cities to the deserts uh, and the fringes of Iraqi, uh, the Sunni-controlled areas in Iraq. Uh, When the Americans left Iraq, before they left Iraq, I mean, out of the thousands of fighters, by 2010, Al-Qaeda in Iraq numbered fewer than a few hundreds, give and take. Again, we don't have the numbers. Please keep in mind. We are speculating a great deal. Uh, Even the American and Western intelligence services don't have the actual numbers. We think that by 2010, Al-Qaeda in Iraq was not only besieged and bleeding, but was out of the major cities. It was down to a few hundred fighting men. The question for us, what does it explain? 2010, 2014, what has happened? How do we explain what are the causes of things? What are the drivers? How do we make sense? of This particular spectacular resurgence: a few hundred fighters in 2010. In 2014, Al-Qaeda or ISIS has a sectarian army between 30,000 and 100,000 fighters, give and take. The Americans say they estimate ISIS has had about between 30 and 35,000 fighters. Some Iraqi and Arab sources estimate that the actual number is more than. 100,000 fighters. We don't know exactly the numbers, but I think if you ask me, this is irrelevant because the social base of support now ISIS controls the lives between 5 and 8 million men. 5 and 8. Al-Qaeda central never controlled the lives of more than 100 or 200 men. ISIS controls the lives of five between 5 and 8 million men. Now they're down to five, six million men. Again, we don't know the exact numbers. It controls a state as big as the United Kingdom. A third of Iraq, probably 40% now uh, of Syria. Its Foreign fighters, again, we don't have the exact numbers, between 20 and 30,000 fighters, give and take. It tells you about, I mean, what happened. Here I want to put on the table four drivers, four ideas, to give you an idea, and again, I'm simplifying a great deal, why this spectacular search. Firstly, 2010, Iraq. Iraq was the home base of al-Qaeda in Iraq. Iraq is the home base of ISIS. It pivotal, it, this is where its social base is. And the reason why, again, um, I have a book in the chapter. I hope you'll be able to purchase it and, and read the chapter on Iraq. It's really one of the most important chapters in the book. 2010 is very important because Iraq was really plunged into a deeper sectarian crisis. Again, you know Nouri al Maliki, 2010 was really a turning point. More and more Sunnis came to feel that they were not really part of the political and social process. They felt alienated, they felt excluded, they felt persecuted, and the sectarian crisis, Nouri al Maliki, was a sectarian thug. Uh, his policies really speak for themselves. Uh, Even the Americans tried very hard. I mean, Barack Obama sent Joe Biden, and Joe Biden uh, knew how to talk to Nouriel Maliki, yet Joe Biden could not really impress on Nouriel Maliki the gravity of the crisis. What I'm trying to say is that the sectarian situation in Iraq became deeply polarized. More and more Sunnis came to realize they were not part of the political and social process. And here you have... Al-Qaeda in Iraq, right? 2006, it became the Islamic State in Iraq. Multiple mutations. So Al-Qaeda in Iraq, 2003, 2006, it became the Islamic State in Iraq. The Islamic Islamic State in Iraq, 2010, led by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. He was basically anointed as the leader of the Islamic State in 2010. He, He realized... The environment became very fertile. The environment was very hospitable. More and more Sunnis who basically did fight al-Qaeda in Iraq began to join the ranks of the Islamic State in Iraq, 2010-2011. As a result of grievances, as a result of a widespread belief within the Sunni communities that Iran, Shia-dominated Iran was pulling the, the shots, in, uh, was calling the shots uh, in Iraq, and here Abu, uh, Abu Bakr al Baghdadi realized this was his moment. And of course, I'm, I'm speculating. What, what he did was to restructure the Islamic State in Iraq, in particular, the military apparatus. He integrated hundreds, if not thousands, of former officers in the Iraqi army, particularly the special forces and the police. He turned the military apparatus of the Islamic State in Iraq into a potent force with tremendous skills. He co-opted thousands of Iraqis into the rank uh, of ISIS. By 2010, 2011, the Islamic State in Iraq, let's call it for now ISIS, became a power to be reckoned with as a result of the transformation in Iraq itself, the sociological transformation in the country, as a result of the... Uh, appointment of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi as the leader, restructuring of the military apparatus, the coming in of hundreds if not thousands of military officers, basically it recovered a great deal and was ready to really uh, make its impact in Iraq and elsewhere. This particular moment, 2010, 2011, as you well know, coincided with the the so-called the Arab Spring Uprisings. Uh, one of the greatest social mobilization probably in the modern history of the Middle East. Syria, again, uh, you all remember what happened in Syria, 2011, 2012. Um, Tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, probably millions of Syrians, came out in terms of calling for justice, calling for reforms, calling for dignity. Uh, Ironically, initially, most of the uh, Syrian protesters did not even call for the exit of Assad from the political scene. They were really calling for reforms. They wanted a different political vision. They wanted a different political environment. I'm simplifying a great deal. You know how Assad dealt with this particular uprising. He used blood and iron to clamp down against the uprising. He radicalized and militarized the uprising. Um, Again, Bashar al Assad supported by Iran and by Hezbollah, two leading Shiite organizations. This particular struggle took on sectarian connotations. You have ISIS and Al Qaeda realized this is their moment. At the end of 2011, now we have the records, we have the statement, multiple statements. 2011, Abu Bakr al Baghdadi sent two of his most loyal lieutenants to Syria by Abu Muhammad al Ghulani. Again, the name might not make any, any... Abu Muhammad al-Gulani is the leader of al-Nusra Front, the official arm of al-Qaeda. He was sent as Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi man to Syria to establish a social base of support. They realized this is their, their moment. Remember, this particular movement, a movement that's nourished on what? On, it's in war zones, conflicts. And, and so between 2011 and the decision was made, according to the leader of al-Qaeda, Ayman zawahiri in his own words, he said, we decided in 2011 to keep our presence in Syria uh, secret. We decided to act basically um, uh, under the radar screen, establish our base of support. They embedded themselves within the various, I mean, formations, the Syrian opposition. Between 2011 and 2013, Al-Qaeda and ISIS were able to establish a major social base of support in Syria in terms of actions, in terms of military tactics, in terms of fighting and this brings me to a related point, third point, I'm going to come back to Syria you, we cannot understand what happened in Syria just in terms of the struggle within Syria itself Syria became as you well know a battlefield for regional wars by proxies and global war by proxies if you ask me what was the most important factor in the rise of Al Qaeda Central? The most important factor in the rise of Al Qaeda Central was not Islam. The most important factor in the rise of Al Qaeda in Iraq was the bipolar rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. This particular rivalry indirectly brought about Al Qaeda Central as a result of basically this global cold war. If you ask me the same way, What's the most important factor about that really allowed Al-Qaeda and ISIS in Syria? I would say the geostrategic rivalry between Sunni-dominated Saudi Arabia and Turkey on the one hand and Iran. And again, I don't need to tell you about the implication of this particular geostrategic rivalry. It has taken on sectarian connotations. It has poisoned the veins of Syrian politics and Arab politics. It has allowed Al-Qaeda and ISIS, remember, We've said al-Qaeda in Iraq is an identity-driven organization. It's obsessed with the Shi'as. It has a genocide ideology. And Syria basically this was offered to ISIS on a silver platter. Because Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and the leaders of al-Qaeda were saying, "We are the vanguard. We can defeat the Shi'as. We can destroy the Shi'as. We can basically commit a genocide against the Shi'a. Cleanse the land." I actually ISIS has been practicing this ideology of cultural cleansing, in particular against minorities, but in particular against uh, I mean, the Shiites and other minorities. What I'm trying to say, again, the geostrategic regional rivalry and sectarianism are the fuel that has really powered the resurgence of ISIS. And Syria is very important, people, you know that. Syria has given ISIS what? Strategic depth. Here you have between Iraq and Syria. It has given ISIS and al-Qaeda economic resources. ISIS controls 80% of the oil fields in Syria are controlled by ISIS and al-Qaeda, 80%. Not to mention foreign fighters. Turkey as a way station, the foreign fighters. Very, very important. ISIS now is fighting tooth and nail to maintain control of the Turkish-Syrian border. They're losing hundreds of men because this is basically a very important important area for them to receive the foreign fighters. Despite everything that has happened, ISIS still controls, according to American intelligence, between 200 and 400 men on a monthly basis. Six months ago, they were receiving about 1,000 men each month from Turkey. There is no conspiracy here. I hope you know that. When I say Turkey as a way station, I don't think the Turkish government is basically uh, uh, consciously... Uh, There's a great deal of debate on why Turkey has not really done more. Uh, I mean, there are explanations for that. But it's not a kind of a conspiracy. It's taken for granted that somehow Turkey is. The reality is when the Syrian civil war started, Turkey and the regional powers poured billions of dollars, arms, and they opened because they wanted to get rid of Assad at all costs. Um, and the Turkish leadership was willing to bring the temple down on everyone, as long as Assad. So in this particular sense, between 2011 and 2014, Syria really became, as a result of geostrategic rivalries, irrational rivalries. I mean, these are about power and politics. Sadly, I mean, they are wrapped and they're taking connotations, sectarian connotation. But remember, this is all about influence, about uh, muscle. It's about interest, state interest. Uh, yet... They have poured gasoline on a raging fire when it comes to the popular will. You might ask a question here, I mean, which is more important, Syria and Iraq? You have many security uh, specialists who say, oh, no Syria, no Iraq. It's it's, it's nonsense. Both Syria and Iraq feed upon each other. Uh, That is, you can't say which one is more important. If you ask me at the end of the day, where is Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi going to have his last battle? stand, his last stand. Of course, Iraq. His last stand is not going to be in Raqqa, uh, the, the uh, unofficial capital. His last stand will be in al Mus. This is where he's going to fight. This is where it's all going to end. Sooner, I hope, rather uh, than late. What I'm trying to say here is that these particular and the final factor, the fourth factor is, and quickly, how much time do I have? Um,
0: about Minutes.
1: That's great. The final factor in the resurgence of ISIS, again, I've already insinuated, is the derailment of the Arab Spring uprising. Again, many commentators make the simple mistake by saying, "Oh, the Arab Spring is responsible for the chaos that basically is racking the Middle East." It's nonsense. The Arab Spring is not responsible for the bloody chaos that ravaging the Arab and the Islamic world is the derailment. It is the sabotage of the Arab Spring uprising that's responsible for the rise of anti-hegemonic movement. I mean, let's remember what has happened. I mean, millions of people, I mean, to me as a student of the Middle East, it's a very important moment. Millions of people in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Libya, In Bahrain, in Syria, I mean, think of the rally in Christ. Justice, freedom, dignity, universal values. How many black flags were among the rallies in Egypt? Did we see many black flags? Did we see any calls for Islamic states or caliphate? Hardly any. When we talk about justice and freedom and dignity, universal values, I'm not suggesting that the millions of Arabs and Muslims who protested, they really wanted democracy a la France or, or uh, the United States, but they were calling for universal values. They were not calling for an Islamic state or a caliphate. And what happens simply is that you have counter-revolutionary movements, the old regimes and geostrategic power and global powers, that basically have invested billions of dollars in order to Sabotage and undermine these particular one of the most important peaceful collective action in the history of the region. The most important historically in the 500 years. I mean, think of how peaceful they were. I mean, it, it, it's impressive for all of us. For me, it, it, we 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 saw in real time the millions of people what they were calling for. This was not the surveys. You don't you've seen people. I mean, think of how peaceful, despite everything else. And again, this particular point about. This convergence of interest between, here you have the two dominant regional powers, Saudi Arabia and Iran. People think that Saudi Arabia is the counter-revolutionary powers. It's nonsense. Both powers are counter-revolutionary forces. Saudi Arabia has invested probably $150 billion in trying to maintain the status quo. Not just in the Gulf, but in Egypt, in Bahrain, and other places. Iran has been fighting tooth and nail to preserve Bashar al-Assad. That's what has happened to the Islamic Republic of Iran. A revolutionary state is trying to preserve a little dictator. This tells you a great deal about how regional rivalries, I mean both, here you have they're competing, both powers are trying to maintain the status quo. What I'm trying to say, the reason why this is a very important point for our story, Because by getting rid of peaceful alternatives, of change, what do you have? You end up with what? You end up with, I mean, subversive models. And here, another conceptual point, I want to really put it on the table. Uh, I mean, ISIS is not just filling a vacuum of security, which is, you have a security vacuum. More importantly, ISIS and al-Qaeda are filling a vacuum of ideas. They're filling an institutional vacuum. Let me give you an idea. The first video released by ISIS after the capture of Mosul, Mosul is the second largest Iraqi city, in June 2014. And the video was called, in Arabic, Kasr al-Hudud, demolishing borders. In the video, ISIS said, we will demolish the Sykes-Picot Agreement that set up the borders of the Middle East between 1916 and 1928 while showing its fighters destroying the borders between Iraq and Syria. ISIS depicted itself, portrayed itself as well As a revolutionary movement that is basically determined to destroy the illegal, irrational borders that have kept the Middle East divided for more than 100 years. And more than that, it's not just destroying the borders. ISIS wants to destroy the foundation of the system that's based on sovereignty. Because ISIS wants to establish what? A pan-Islamic identity to replace the sovereignty of the system. And this is, in a way, ISIS... Not, the reason why ISIS is dangerous is not because it has 30,000 fighters. ISIS is filling a vacuum of ideas. It's offering itself as an alternative in a world that there are no ideas now in that part of the world. The exception of literally speaking. What are the ideas? The exception of constitutionalism in Tunisia. Most of the ideas are bunk militarism, and Islamism, you know, and, and, and in between. I, I want to hurry up because I, I, I'm... Uh, the big point I want to make now, really, is just to wrap up my argument, the, the historical, in, in, is that if you ask me how do I make sense of this particular movement, ISIS, and the anti-hegemonic movements, I mean, it's not just ISIS, Al-Qaeda, it's really ISIS is a symptom of the breakdown of state institutions in the region. That the state system has broken up. Uh, in terms of creeping sectarianism, the rise of non-state actors, what you really have, the reason why, I mean, you're seeing uh, these particular movements, they're f- filling a, a multiple vacuums in the region. The state system has almost collapsed. And quickly, I just want to give you a very simplistic and probably misleading view what I mean by this really. That is, in a way, if I can really borrow a term in a cliché from, from uh, Gramsci, what you have in the region, really, in my region, the Middle East, the Great, is an organic crisis. And what I mean by an organic crisis, it's a multifaceted crisis that encompasses both state and society on multiple levels. I mean, you have the breakdown of the state system, whether you're talking about Iraq, about Syria, about Yemen, about Libya, about Lebanon, about Sudan, and even, even some of the, I mean, the biggest state in the region, Egypt itself, is really fighting for its survival at this particular stage. And what do I mean by organic crisis? Again, I'm simplifying. I'm talking about both in terms of institutional, social, and economic. I mean, think of the institutions in the region. What what has happened to the formal institutions in the region? The formal institutions have been systematically demolished and dismantled by the post-colonial state, systematically. Whether it was Saddam Hussein, or whether it's Hafez al-Assad, or whether it's Muammar al-Qadhafi, literally, systematically demolished the formal institution. I'm talking about the judiciary. I'm talking about the neutral institutions that mediate conflict. And they have been replaced by the cult of personalities and by uh, patronage networks and by networks around the regimes themselves. In many ways, the formal state system really has been replaced by family-based estates. And I'm not really talking about the Gulf here. I mean, the family-based states. If I have the time, I could really tell you what I mean by the family-based. Most of the republican regimes in the region were really creating hereditary states, a post-colonial state. And again, an organic crisis. It's really it's a constant. I mean, foreign intervention, neglect of the region. I mean, think when the United States and Europe, when they discovered the Middle East, for the wrong reasons. Sadly, the neglect is again. I don't need to tell you. I mean, you know, what, what, how the great powers have dealt with this part of the world for probably hundred years. Uh, either in terms of domination, uh, supporting the bloody dictators, uh, ignoring the pleas of human rights organizations, sacrificing the question of law and humanity at the altar of their silly, um, uh, well, realist interests. Uh, silly for us, but for them, it's not silly at all when you have uh, hundreds of billions of dollars to be spent on, on and very venture. This is the institutional level, social and economic. I mean, quickly, we don't have the time. When you talk about the greater Middle East, and I'm not really exaggerating, this is the wealthiest regions in the world. Uh, you know what I mean by that. I mean, in terms of resources, in ter- both in terms of human resources, raw resources, and civilization. you can't. You, I mean, the Middle East is it, really, the greater Middle East. It, it's, it, it's a, it's a uh, 320 million people. Probably the, the, the greatest cash flow in the world is not in China today is in our part of the world in terms of cash. And it's not the lack of money. It's a lack of development. It's a developmental failure. It's, you don't invest the money in a productive basis. It's a state failure. Out of the 320 million people, I'm simplifying. We estimate between 40 and 30% of the 300 million people live either in poverty or below the poverty line. Give and take. Let's see, you're talking about, in Egypt, 90 million people, we estimate there's probably about 40 million Egyptians who live in poverty. And probably 20 million Egyptians live in abject poverty. I mean, this is... In terms of unemployment among the educated, semi-educated youth across the board, between 30... Please don't, don't take the... the, the, the the numbers, the statistics by the World Bank, very seriously, they're given to them by the actual state. In Tunisia, unemployment among the educated, semi-educated, is 50%. Blockage in the system, demographic crisis. When I say 60, 65% of the population are below the ages, of 28 years old, systemic corruption. Iraq, that was supposed to be a model of the Jeffersonian democracy. Out of 168 states in the world, according to Transparency International, it ranks 161 in terms of corruption. One of the most corrupt countries in the world. On and on, we can talk about Egypt percentage in terms of corruption, in terms of lack of opportunities. 40% of the surveys, I don't know how accurate, the surveys that we have, 40% of young men and women in the Middle East would like to leave today to migrate Talk about the refugee crisis, about terrorism. In fact, I should not say this. I am pleasantly surprised that only 30,000 fighters have joined ISIS. Given the organic crisis, I would have expected probably hundreds of thousands of desperate young men to really join ISIS. Because ISIS is not just providing an alternative to the state, it's providing a utopia. It's a utopia, I mean, that appeals to many Sunnis, young Sunnis, in terms of the state system, in terms of Colonialism, in, t- in terms of the dictators, and what have you, and what have you. In, in this particular sense, really, for us, <clears throat> and we should be—we we- are—I mean—tormented by the savagery we hear, by s- savagery we see. I mean, I ded- dedicated my book, which I hope you will purchase, <laughs> to the young Yazidis women who have been who have been sexually enslaved. Five thousand women. I mean, it, it is. But for many people in the region, when you go, they're not really as disturbed by the savagery as we are. Because the alternative, I mean, think of what Assad does. His bombing of the medical centers, of the hospitals, of killing civilians, and what's happening in Iraq, and what have you. I mean, the, the, the savagery, looking at it from the outside, is, as you know, different from when you look at it from the inside. But many people in the region, even though they don't condone the Islamic State violence, they don't see it in the same You know, ritualized. This display of violence is not really does not affect the imagination in the same way that it does. We we see it from here. Final point: What really, if you ask me, and I've taken much more time than I should have, uh, it's not really about defeating ISIS militarily. Uh, Al Qaeda in Iraq was defeated militarily, right? 2006, 2008. It mutated. It became ISIS. We. It's a matter of time. ISIS is going to be defeated. The question is not, the question is you have to deal with the ideology, the ideology of Salafi jihadism that has found a receptive audience. How do you deal with this particular, uh, without having an alternative, without rebuilding the state system, rebuilding institutions, without putting out the fires in the region, without putting an end to the geostrategic rivalries that have have poured gasoline on the region. Everything I'm saying, these are very cliche. What I'm trying to say this is really a long, complex struggle. It's not a matter of a year or two because rebuilding institutions, as you know, it's a very complex and difficult process. Rebuilding the state system, we know it takes a generation. And it's not just a a term we throw in terms of generation. We're talking about probably a few decades. Uh, Final point, what's happening, please don't be blinded by what's happening. This is part of state formation, right? Uh, state formation, we have learned if we have learned anything about state formation is drenched in blood even the state formation in Europe itself was culminated in the greatest crime in world history right? Holocaust, it, what's happening in the Middle East, it's just in real time, we're witnesses to this particular struggle but I don't think we're seeing the disintegration of the state system, I think we're seeing the formation of a state system how long will it take, what kind of a state system would emerge out of the rubble?
0: Who knows? Thank you. Um, well, uh, thank you, Fawaz. And I mean, the, the passion that you approach your subject with really comes out in, in your speaking and your writing. Um, and, you know, you even managed to finish on a vaguely positive note, which is quite an achievement when talking about this subject um, and a vision for the future. But we have uh, already one hand up, up there, so we're uh, – yeah? Shall we take
1: three, four questions at a
0: time? If you prefer, uh, we can take three questions, uh, and then Fowers will answer them.
2: Thank you very Just much. Go ahead. I'm uh, Heide Rida from Bain & Company. Uh, my question is what stakeholders in Europe can do to bring an end to ISIS, specifically academia, politics, and the corporate world because we see that ISIS has a very slick uh, campaign on Twitter through mosques that can bring 15-year-old girls from Manchester to join them. And there's a real lack of a strategic integrated answer that brings a counter-narrative that tells these girls, no, you're not going there to defend the Sunnis, you're there going to join an organization that is raping, enslaving, killing, etc. So what can academia do to bring those data to the table to say, this is how many Sunni women ISIS has killed, this is how many Sunni men uh, ISIS has killed. What can politics do to put pressure on Turkey to close the border, on the Gulf states that have been funding mosques for many uh, decades now? And what can the corporate world do to bring, for example, marketing campaigns on Twitter, on Google, for people uh, Googling them and and bringing that counter-narrative into the public space? Thank you very much. Okay.
0: Um, now We do like to try to encourage uh, gender equality, including in as- asking questions. Uh, there's a woman here.
2: Congratulations on your book. Um, my question is about, um, you initially said that IS came about due to Sunni grievances in Iraq um, and that it was founded on an extremely anti Shiite ideology. Um, but in Syria, many see the movement as one that colludes with Um, an Alawite regime, Uh, one example being when IS uh, took Tadmor and then again when the government recaptured it. Um, So some see it in Syria as operating in a way that's counter to the very ideological premise that it was founded upon. Um, So do you think that it has gone through an ideological transformation in Syria? Um, Or is it that the ideology that it was founded upon in the beginning was flawed or maybe not as deeply rooted As some people say. Oh, ISIS? Yes.
0: Do you want one more? Yeah. Okay, I think the gentleman right at the back had his hand up first with the blue shirt. Hmm. (coughs) Thanks for your talk. Um, You date the incorporation of the um, former Baath intelligence officers and army officers into ISIS in 2010. Um, And since then, clearly, they've provided for uh, military and intelligence infrastructure. But it makes me wonder who is, at this point, making the decisions at ISIS. Are it either the Wahhabist Islamists or are it the former um, Saddam Hussein intelligence officers? Because (coughs) these two groups seem to differ, uh, qua ideology, I would say.
1: Excellent question. Shall we? Uh, thank you for. I will start with the last question. For asking this question about this kind of unholy alliance between former Basist officers and uh, Salafi jihadists, if you, the dominant narrative in the media in the past two years is that somehow the Basist, the secular nationalist Basists, have taken over, have hijacked the so-called Islamic State. Uh, they really, I mean even the Washington Post, and uh, initially uh, one or two uh, texts uh, based on statements and taken out of context, and, and the thesis now really has gained many followers. Uh, this was one of the most difficult, really, chapter for me to write in the book. I, I, I have a chapter, uh, ISIS, Jihadists, and Ba'athists, who converted whom? Uh, with a question mark. And in the chapter, I spent really. In fact, uh, my argument is that uh, Salafi jihadists were able to convert hundreds of Basis on mass for a variety of reasons. You can be a Salafi jihadist and Basmis. This is—it's an ideology, an absolutist ideology. It does not. There are no blurred lines. Uh, it is. Uh, it has a. a, a uh, everything is set in stone. Their worldview is uh, based on this particular ideology, an ideology that basically views the world through really 7th century Arabia. Uh, There's no other model. You have to go back to 7th century Arabia, impose 7th century Arabia on the present wholesale. As simple as that. In particular ISIS, al-Qaeda has been able to evolve a bit. It has been able to compromise. It has adapted, adjusted. ISIS is basically, uh, I mean, the purity, it, it follows a, a pure model. Uh, I'll give you, t- I want to spend a bit of time on this because this is really one of the uh, uh, misleading arguments that has been, in fact, most of the uh, Basist officers that joined ISIS in 2010, 2011 had already been radicalized and militarized and Islamized after the American invasion. The American-controlled prisons, I mean, hundreds of them were basically sat down at the feet of Salafi jihadist jihadists and al-Qaeda. They were being Islamicized not only actually after the U.S.-led invasion. In fact, the economic sanctions imposed on Iraq after, I mean, the Gulf War, many officers as a result of pressure, as a result of hardship, as a result were become Islamicized. And, in fact, and if you go back to see what happened in Takrit, in Fallujah, in Mosul, Initially, ISIS jihadists basically collaborated with tens of thousands because the Bas in Mosul, the Bas had a magnificent uh, infrastructure. I mean, in Fallujah, in Takrit, bases cities. They collaborated with them during the first few weeks. Once ISIS took over the cities, guess what happened to the bases? Ultimatum, you either join or you'll be killed. There are hundreds of senior Ba'asists are they killed or imprisoned still. And I'm not, these are not my words. I'm talking about the leaders of the Baathists who came out and basically told us what ISIS has been doing to form a Ba'arsist. Literally hundreds were massacred en masse in Al-Musul, in Takreed, in Fallujah, after basically initial collaboration. Uh, and also one of the mistakes that many observers make is that they focus on the tactics and methodology of ISIS, which really Baathist in a way. They have taken many of the security, I mean, the apparatus books, and they confuse tactics with ideology. Even if they are, I mean, these officers who act within ISIS, they have senior position in terms of security, in terms of military, but first and foremost, they are ISIS jihadists dedicated to establishing the caliphate, the caliphates along 7th century Arabia. The bases have gone. It's a passé. It's, It's no longer there. This is a pure Salafi jihadist movement that dedicated to really reclaiming 7th century Arabia and imposing 7th century Arabia on the present as it is. It, it, this is not about the secular authoritarian ideology of the 1950s and 1960s and 1970s and 1980s of, of Iraq and Syria. I really don't know what Europe can do. I, I, I mean, this is more of a security Uh, questions, uh, it it is very difficult for me to think of, uh, I mean, strategies to... uh, First of all, I have to say that uh, it's a very small phenomenon. Uh, Yes, there are, well, small and not. You're you're talking about 4,000 men and women who have joined ISIS. Small, in a sense, uh, you're not talking really about huge numbers, um, most of these young men um, and women who have joined ISIS really have rudimentary, uh, basically, knowledge of Islam in the first place. Uh, most of them really want one, Islam, as opposed to really being well-versed in the Islamic doctrine and, and the Quran. I'm serious. The evidence, the tentative evidence that we have, most of them are illiterate when it comes to Islamic ideology. Uh, I mean, we know from the Belgian and French cells, basically petty criminals and you know uh, uh, criminal uh, networks. Uh, and this is more of a community-inspired. Um, You're talking about multiple approaches that Europe now is. But I don't have any kind of specific, a magical wand. But say, you know, how do I? How can really Europe <coughs> deal with this particular phenomenon? Uh, this particular utopia, sadly, it resonates with some young men and women. Um, in some European neighborhoods for a variety of reasons, in the same way that other European ideologies resonated with tens of thousands of men in the 1940s and 1950s and 1960s. You're talking about, obviously, it's not about class, it's not about education, because you have multiple, right? Some of them middle class, some of them are poor, some of them educated, some of them, uh, but for a variety of reasons, uh, they decided to have joined. Well, we we also know that 10% of the 4,000 Um, I mean, volunteers are women. This is again another puzzling question question for us: is that why would young women join this particular uh, organisation that practices torture and and slavery, sexual slavery? Uh, It it is. I know it sounds irrational. It's not irrational if you look at it from because, in terms of you know being brainwashed, in terms we have certain ideas, certain and I'm I'm, I'm being. I've, I've almost read everything that. We know that most of the volunteers, most of the ones who decide to go, are basically influenced by people, uh, peer groups. Um, Other in terms of people who have gone to Iraq and Syria. Other in terms of certain charismatic clerics that exist in Western societies, certain charismatic individuals. other, Other by the social media of ISIS. Uh, Remember, the reason why, I mean, if you you compare ISIS and al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda has never been able to attract such a large number because al-Qaeda has never been able to show through deeds and action that it could deliver the goods. I mean, if you look at the two, and that's what fascinates me as a student researcher, is that if you you take a look at al-Qaeda central and the Salafi jihadist movement. This is a movement about ideas, about manifestos, about clerics, about texts, hundreds of texts. I mean, you can't just kill for this movement. You, just, you have to have texts and you have to have clerics. If you look at ISIS, it's vacuous. There is not even a single cleric, not even a single cleric who has come out in support of ISIS. Either in the mainstream, or even in the radical Islamist movement. It's orphaned, intellectually and theologically. But what ISIS has done, ISIS words, I mean actions speak louder than words. It's winning. It has captured I mean two-thirds of Syria. It's a third of Iraq establishing an Islamic caliphate. And this particular, the actions speak louder. It's the idea come and join me. If you live you live in a heavenly Islamic state, and if you die, you go straight to heaven. So, again, we need to understand the multiple, and the question is what kind of tactic, what kind of, it's very, very difficult to, uh, my take on it is that this particular, the debates, not just here in Western societies, I mean, I think ISIS is losing, and I didn't talk about, ISIS is beginning to lose the fight in both Iraq and Syria. ISIS has mastered the art of making enemies of everyone. I mean, it has turned the world against ISIS. No political vision, no positive vision. We know now evidence is coming from Iraq and Syria. The populations are restive. They're trying to rise up. Many defections. Its financial empire is basically being uh, trailed by the Americans. Uh, If you ask me, what's the important thing you can do to really puncture a hole is that if you dislodge ISIS from the cities and the towns in Iraq, and if you, if you hammer a nail in the narrative of victory, you really destroy its ability to convince Western men and women to uh, join this particular movement because it's many of the young men and women who are joining the movement think they are joining a winning horse. They are really going to live in an Islamic caliphate. What we're seeing in Iraq and Syria of course, they have promised heaven, but we know that they have delivered death and dust so far. And this is by itself, it's much more powerful. Because look, anything we say here, is, whenever the West engages in this particular fight for ideas, in many ways you provide them with, with ammunition, because that's exactly what they say. This is not about a fight between the West and ISIS. This is a, really, we're talking about the clash of, of Islamic identities, This is a kind of a, it's not just about an Islamic, Islamic war. This is a clash of Islamic identities. How do you define the doctrine? How do you interpret, um, I mean, the Islamic doctrine? In what ways? Um, How far has, I mean, the Islamic doctrine come? Um, Do we dismiss 14 centuries of interpretation and counter-interpretation? Or do we go back to basically the source, the golden age, the ideal type? They are going to the ideal type, and the ideal type is finally basically alienating most of the people in the region because the ideal type is gone, does not exist. It's a methodology. It's a mythology. You can't just, I mean, go back to the ideal type. It does not exist. I I don't think uh, in Syria we have seen any kind of transformation or mutation of the ideology. Uh, You have multiple wars in Syria. On the one hand, ISIS is fighting the so-called I mean, Alawite regime. Alawite is not the same as Shia, as you know. But that's how uh, the Assad Alawite regime is interpreted as, an, as, as a Shia regime. At the same time, you have a civil war taking place between ISIS and Al-Qaeda. In fact, the irony is that, uh, I, mean, I, I, I mentioned a point about ISIS is trying to destroy the state system and establish a pan-Islamic system. Yet, the fight between ISIS and al-Qaeda is all about the state system. Al-Qaeda in Syria is saying, we are with you as long as you stay in Iraq. Keep your, I mean, if you stay in Iraq, but don't come to Syria, this is our state. So even ISIS and al-Qaeda are really functioning within a state system itself. It's, it's a very bitter and a very costly fight. It's, it's about really power in many ways. Um, ISIS is trying to establish its own state. Al-Qaeda is trying to establish its own state in Syria. And this tells you, I mean, it's a relevant point, is that how the state system itself, regardless of how we interpret Sykes-Picot, it really has become deeply embedded now. Even even Salafi Jihadists subscribe to this particular, I mean, uh, foundational uh, idea.
0: Okay, more questions? Okay. Uh, right, uh, the fourth row there. Yeah, fourth row. Sorry, it's the hardest one to get to. Yeah.
2: Um, hi, thank you for your talk. I just wanted to quickly ask um, what impact the rivalry between ISIS and Al Qaeda has on the legitimacy of a caliphate. So, if I understand it correctly, it's an idea of having a borderless, sort of inclusive state, and kind of what impact that rivalry has at the centre of building a state.
0: Thank you. Okay. Okay. And there's a woman right at the back there in the balcony. Yeah, with uh... Hi.
2: Um. Thank you very much for your talk. Um. I wondered whether you could comment on how the rapprochement between Iran and. Uh, uh, the US and Britain has impacted the uh, development of ISIS and whether further warming of relations would uh, create more risks or opportunities.
0: Yeah, one more shot. There's a gentleman with a, uh, here, with, yeah, right, sitting down there, yeah, in the balcony, yeah, because you had your hand up a long time ago. So, I, Thank yeah. you very much. Okay. Uh, as you said, this, uh, the idea of ISIS established pan-Islamic Caliphate. is there any scope for Iran, which is an Islamic state as such, whether that would be included in the Islamic
1: state as well? Thanks. Shall we? Uh, I mean, I think uh, I I have not said much about the the fierce uh, civil war that's taken place between ISIS on the one hand and al-Qaeda, in particular in Syria. Thousands of fighters, skilled fighters, have been killed. The global Salafi jihadist movement has been split uh, between Al Qaeda and ISIS. Most of the clerics within the global, the radical or radicalized or militarized clerics, have basically sided with Al Qaeda. I mean, I, I mention, if you purchase my book, you'll see all the. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's it's, it. it's, it's absolutely it's, good, yeah. it's 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 really worth it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I have my Princeton University Press uh, colleague here. She said she, she, it's her fault. She said you have to. <laughs> Most of the clerks. No, seriously. <laughs> it professor, embarrassing for LSC professor too. <laughs> um, Most of the clerics, the militarized clerics, have sided with al-Qaeda for a variety of reasons. The first thing they say, the conditions are not ripe to establish caliphate. They say that you have to have to liberate the land, you have to control the land, you have to uh, cleanse the land, you have to have the means to protect your people, point one. Point two, they said establishing the caliphate cannot be done just by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and his cabinet, as it was done. You have to have, I mean, consultation. You have to have, I mean, uh, and they say, who did ISIS basically, I mean, consult? Hardly anyone. How do you establish who are you to? who are the clerics? Uh, So there's a big debate and the, I mean, overwhelming, overwhelming evidence that most of the heavyweights Salafi jihadist clerics have said this is basically, as, as Abu Qutada, most of you have heard the name, a British uh, Abu Qutada said, uh, the caliphate is a bubble. ISIS caliphate. You're talking about, I mean, when you have a radical like Abu Qutada, who used to be an inspiration for Al-Qaeda, coming out and saying this is a bubble, because it does not really express either the wishes or the aspiration. On the whole, this is... And, and finally, I think in terms of when you talk about the caliphate itself, they say, look at the damage that you have done to the Salafi jihadist movement. This is not how the caliphate behaved. So al-Qaeda is very, very much concerned. Here is the irony. They're very concerned about the ISIS, what ISIS is doing to the global jihadist movement. They're saying, you are damaging the brand, quote, unquote. Abu Muhammad uh, uh, top cleric in, in, in uh, Jordan, he's, uh, he said, look, the, the brand was doing wonderfully. till you, I mean, the, the acts... And, and No, seriously. They, they said that what you're doing is doing... In fact, uh, you are not a friend of the global jihadist movement. You are our enemy. And, and this particular rivalry, it's not just intellectual. It really is. But ISIS, the reason why ISIS has done as well as it has, even though it does not have the clerics, the ideas because it has done well on the battlefield. And as we said, actions on the minds have even more... Here is the irony. While the clerics are siding with Al-Qaeda, more and more Al-Qaeda fighters have joined ISIS because they want action, because they see that ISIS delivers. And only you can reverse this particular trend is by basically hammering a deadly nail in the coffin of the narrative itself. Here is to give you an idea about this particular rivalry, you have the Jordanian government and other government now, is that basically they're really throwing the red carpet for al-Qaeda clerics, the Salafi, because the fight against, which is very uh, counterproductive, because al-Qaeda clerics, I mean, they are opposed to ISIS, not because they don't believe in the brand, but because they believe that ISIS is going about it the wrong way. Um, And yes, it, it has done a great deal of damage Another point here is that this is the first time really in the past probably 70 or 80 years that the idea of the caliphates now is being debated. It's debated by mainstream Islamists. So even though the caliphate, the Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi caliphate idea is not really taken seriously, but the idea itself now has been put on the table. Uh, and it has It's a kind of utopia. It's a fringe thing, but it's becoming more and more really part of the discussion among, I mean, Islamic scholar and Islamist scholars. On the question of Iran, uh, I mean, I I think the 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 uh, agreement, the nuclear agreement between Iran and the great powers, in particular the United States, is seen in the eyes of ISIS as a kind of a confirmation. That the United States is conspiring with Iran against the Sunni based, I mean, uh, world. And in particular, the idea is look at what the United States is doing in Iraq. It's indirectly working with the Shiite dominated. And again, because of the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran, uh, this particular nuclear deal has been basically interpreted as a kind of the United States siding with Iran against the Sunni dominated world and ISIS has tried to really milk this particular narrative because remember this is uh, so indirectly in fact the, the rival is in the Middle East itself the cleavages really help ISIS to basically embed itself in Iraqi and Syrian uh, uh, societies because they play on these particular contradictions uh, but I don't think the nuclear deal itself has done, I mean, has changed in any qualitative way, either the fight or the configuration of forces, except that Saudi Arabia now and Iran, you have, I mean, this particular fierce rivalry has taken on, uh, has become very uh, pronounced, and now is playing um, on Arab streets, uh, whether you're talking about Syria or Yemen or Lebanon or other places, uh, No. Uh, For the Sunni-dominated universe, if I may use this term, Iran is not seen as part of the... uh, In fact... uh, uh, Well, for my subject matter, for the global Salafi jihadists, the Shiites are seen as a fifth column. In fact, they're seen as a dagger in the heart of the Islamic world, much more dangerous than the infidels, the Christians and the Jews. In fact, they, they, they take... A, a less hostile view of the Jews and Christians than the, the Shi'at. And they really, I mean, this is a genocide ideology, truly, uh, in terms of the Shi'at. Now, in particular, ISIS. Al Qaeda does not really have um, strong views about the Shi'at, even though it views the Shi'at as uh, infidels and as subversives and as. Uh, non-Muslims. To give you an idea, if you you take a look at the debate that took place between Al-Qaeda in Iraq and Ayman Zawahiri and Osama bin Laden, if you read the letters exchanged between Ayman Zawahiri and Abu Mas'ab al-Zarqawi, what did Ayman Zawahiri say to Abu Mas'ab al-Zarqawi? He begged Abu Mas'ab al-Zarqawi, please stop this massacre of the Shi'at. Our people, our People don't view the conflict with the Shia in the same way that we do. Don't divert attention from the fight against the Americans. We don't like the Shia. We don't trust the Shia. Let them go to hell, but let's not focus the fight on the Shia. I'm I'm, I'm paraphrasing word for word. Letters by Ayman Zawahiri to Abu Mas'ab al-Zarqawi. Don't divert the fight from the far enemy. Don't focus on the Shia. Abu Mas'ab al-Zarqawi said... In terms of enemies, he prioritized the fight against the Shiite. The Shiites are evil. The Shiites have basically collaborated with the Americans. The Shiites are the police and the security forces. The Shiites are a subversive force within Islam. We must eradicate, again, I'm paraphrasing, read the chapter if you purchase a copy. (laughs) No, no, seriously, on, on the chapter on... Uh, al-Qaeda and Iraq and it tells you a great deal. So it's not just Iran is not part of an Islamic state. My subject matter, ISIS, views the Shiat and prioritize the fight against it. some I- hyper-identity driven organization and it really has a genocide, I see, I- ideology against it. One more, two more.
0: Yeah, there's hands going up everywhere now. I think you were first going to get to get in and then um, yeah, thank you. For, it's very interesting your your, your speech. Um, but what, what we're all focusing on ISIL or ISIS. But what you also mentioned was that there's a great upheaval in the Middle East all over. Um, so even if ISIS is defeated militarily, there's still major up problems there. Um, and I wondered if you could comment on that. Thank you. Yes, uh, So right at the back uh, right in the back, yeah. Thanks very much, Professor. Um, Two interlinked questions uh, on sort of the operational. Um, Ah no, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) I was was hoping you could say a little bit about the composition of government revenues or ISIS Inc beyond antiquities and potential private donors from the Gulf and oil and so on and so forth. Um, And if you could say something about potential succession beyond beck daddy thank you very much okay, I'm trying to see is there woman? okay can't see any women uh, well yeah, yeah. yes yeah, that's, yeah. that's
1: yeah. um uh,
2: i'd just like to know um why you reject Dabik as the place of uh, ISIS's last stand, given the sort of the apocalyptic importance it accords it, and why you sort of, prefer Mosul uh, as, the, as the place of the last stand?
1: I'm sorry, I didn't get the question.
2: Um, why you, you said that uh, Mosul in Iraq would be um, the place that uh, ISIS would have its last stand if it had a choice, um, and why it, that wouldn't be Dabik, the sort of the village that it accords apocalyptic significance? Yes,
1: thanks. Shall we? Uh, thank you. It, it really is what's happening in the Middle East. I mean, we, we are all blinded and we are all focused on ISIS for the, for the simple reason because ISIS is the ritualized violence, the display of barbarism and savagery. It's the killing. But I hope that – I mean, I, w- I have been able to really get across the point that this is a greater crisis, a bigger crisis than ISIS – In fact, ISIS would not have done as well as it has without exploiting, manipulating the organic crisis that exists in the region. That ISIS and other anti-hegemonic movements, I mean, the reason why, it's not just about ISIS, uh, Al-Qaeda, sectarian-based groups, uh, sectarianism, regionalism, localism, because the state itself, the, the, the state system is very fragile. The immunity system is very fragile, and all kinds of these uh, parochial uh, groups have been able to infiltrate the system. So yes, even if we defeat ISIS, and I I have no doubts in my mind that ISIS is going to be defeated, uh, whether in a year or two. But the question is, the bigger question, the more challenging question, how do you rebuild state institutions? How do you prevent anti-hegemonic movement? How do you prevent the collapse of the system? Uh, not just in terms of borders, in terms of the fragmentation, um, the social fabric. I mean, we have, uh, I've been talking about ISIS somehow. I mean, in Syria, you have 270,000 people, at least 200 that have been killed, a million injured. Uh, you're talking about 60% of the Syrian people now uh, who have been either uh, refugees or displaced people, one of the greatest humanitarian catastrophe. I mean, Halab, in the last uh, 10 days, only... 250 people killed, hundreds injured, Um, on and on and on. How are you going to glue Syria back together and Iraq and and these countries? This is, and really, we are not really giving much attention to the morning after. And the reason why the Americans are very, and I I think Barack Obama is correct, Uh, it's not about rushing, sending American special forces and the Marines. The Americans can go and take over Mosul in a month or two. They have taken, as you know, twice Fallujah. Uh, The question is, what's the alternative? How do you fill the spaces, the governance spaces, local spaces? How do you convince the communities to live together? How do you establish? I mean, I'm talking about governance, and I'm talking about institutions. Um, I think, in a way, the Middle East today is really resembles Europe after World War II in terms of a devastated area, in terms of both economically. I mean, there are tons of money. But it's a lack of... You have state failure, developmental failure. And I think... I was hoping you would ask me about Europe, not in terms of what Europe can do about, I mean, these young men, but what Europe and the international community can do to help, really help societies and people reimagine a different future. Reimagine, reimagine a different future, different than the colonial system and the post-colonial authoritarian system. But because Europe, and, and, and I have not said... I mean, we teach international relations. I have not said much about international relations. I mean, the the way that the international community, and particularly the United States and the great powers, have dealt with the Middle East, you know how it is in terms of power relations, in terms of they have really never invested uh, any kind of resources. Um, And, in fact, they have been part of the problem. Uh, Actually, uh, I started my talk by saying uh, foreign intervention in Iraq played a key role in the rise of al-Qaeda in Iraq, and the global rivalry was very pivotal. Uh, and the rise of Al Qaeda itself. Al Qaeda is a product of the Cold War, in the same way that ISIS is a product of the geostrategic uh, rivalry between in the region. But initially, it was part of the American invasion. Uh, I'm not saying that the, Ameri- the Americans created ISIS, but as Barack Obama said, you know, it's the unintended consequences. I mean, that's exactly uh, what happened. There is no kind of vision. There is no. The Americans are tired. The Americans want to go home. They're just burnt. They, they don't. Want, uh, I mean, Obama. It's, it's, does not want to do anything with the region. Uh, I mean, he's been forced really to come back kicking and screaming. And it's a minimalist approach, just minimalist. It's not... Uh, uh, I mean, I, I think uh, beyond uh, hype, I think it's fair to say that ISIS is the wealthiest uh, social uh, movement, anti-hegemonic movement in the world today. Uh, In terms of, we don't know the exact, I mean, uh, but on on average, I mean, you're talking about billions of dollars, give and take. We have multiple numbers depending, because now its money resources have been cut, have been halved in the last year. It's suffering a great deal. The Americans have a strategy, and they're using it relatively very effective. It's called, you know, following the trail of money. I mean, all organizations march on their stomachs, right? It's not just I mean, armies, even, even organization. And the Americans are really systematically going about really trying to destroy the financial infrastructure in terms of oil, in terms of gas, in terms of cash, in terms... But the problem with ISIS, ISIS controls the lives of 8 million people. It has 8 million hostages. You can, yes, they're very poor in Deir-Zur, but you can tax them to... you can squeeze them. huh? And that's exactly... It has been able to create a diverse, criminalized war economy. And it's been rather effective. Yes, they're suffering a great deal. Ultimately, it's going to implode, ultimately. But one of the lessons we have learned about this particular group, you're not going to see a just swift implosion, a fight to the last man. Think of the fights. Every single city, whether it's Takrit, whether it's Ramadi, whether it's Hit, they don't, I mean, you take over the city, but they're destroyed. They're leaving behind wreckage and rubble. And that's what's really scary about What's happening is that, yes, you win against ISIS, but the cost is tremendous. It was fascinating to hear John Brennan giving an interview on Sunday by saying that we're gonna, they're going to kill Abu Bakr al Baghdadi because they are drawing lessons from killing Osama bin Laden. He said, if we take him out, this would have a major impact. Uh, they have taken, as you know, the, the Americans, again, and, and the British and the French, systematically trying to degrade the leadership. They're focusing on both the leadership, top leadership, and the middle levels. And they've been very effective. So this is more of a, but it takes a long time. And this is an organization it has been really now decentralized. Because, and this is almost one year and a half. Uh, I mean, offices in the field, the, the betelation offices, are really in charge now. That's why they have been able to wage wars in multiple theaters. So whether you're talking about Palmyra, whether you're talking about Diarizur, whether you're talking about uh, Raqqa or Shadadi or Takrit or Ramadi or Al-Musul, this is really, it's, it's officers in the field, they, their motto is that come join us and see our model by the martyrdom of our leaders. They have lost um, the, the, the officers, the commanders, more commanders are being killed than fighters. And, and this is a strategy that they have been able to baptize more and more commanders as a result of blood. And, and young fighters are seeing commanders being killed. They realize that they're all in the same trenches. Ironically, this is a kind of a special operations doctrine, that officers are lead i mean, the charge. And that's exactly... So they have been able... Do I believe that even if you kill Baghdadi... I mean, have we heard from Baghdadi more than a year? Disappear. Uh because he realizes that this is a movement so far that has been able to replenish its ranks. It might have an effect. I mean, Osama bin Laden's uh, uh, death did not really bring about the end of al-Qaeda, right? In fact, what we're seeing now is a kind of resurgence of al-Qaeda. My take on it, and this I hope I'm wrong, I'm just speculating now, is that probably al-Qaeda will most likely... Um, inherit the spoils of ISIS in Syria. And that's the sad tragedy, is that Al-Nusra Front, I'm sure most of you know, Al-Nusra Front is the official art, has been been much more calculating and intelligent than ISIS. It has basically blended with local... uh, In fact, Al-Nusra Front front now, that is Al-Qaeda, is fighting together with the Free Syrian armies in Aleppo and Latakia and other places. And this tells you a great deal. It has been able to sell itself as a kind of a local uh, outfit, as opposed to being a, yet it's really objective, Al-Qaeda, much more than ISIS. That ISIS, at the end of the day, is really local. It's about an Islamic state, even though ISIS has been devoting more and more resources to attacks in the West. But this should not, if there is one point, really, I would, in addition to the point about the book you take with you, really, is that ISIS' really major strategic goal is really the near enemy, is at home. They want to establish and consolidate their state as opposed to really attacking the West. While al-Qaeda has never changed, its strategy has always been the head of the snake, the United States, and its own, uh, its close European allies. Uh, I don't buy the rubbish, by the way, Dabak. This is, and it's, it's a very sexy thesis Uh, And it's, yes, ISIS is going to make, debit is going to fall in a matter of weeks or months. The big fight, and they know these are calculating bastards. ISIS realizes where the fight, the big fight is. It's going to be in Mosul. This is where most fighters, this is where the skilled, they're really building the trenches. This is where the final battle will be. Uh, This is really where it's the social base. This is where it's going to be. Yes, they play on, they use Dabak very effectively in terms of narrative, in terms of everything else. But in terms of resources, in terms of social base, the social base, keep in mind, the social base of support, the structure, the organization. al Musul is really the nerve center. It's the center of gravity where ISIS will, would make its last stand. And that's why the Americans really are pushing very hard. Both Al-Raqqa and Al-Nusra, but if you, if you really listen carefully to the, what the Americans, what, is they realize this is it. Uh, they're going, I mean, systematically, city by city, the fight for Fallujah started, but the preparation is for Mosul. If you take, if you defeat ISIS and Mosul, it's the beginning of the end. It's not the mean, because it's going to mutate into something else. So I don't buy the, the this you know wonderful you know, thesis about Dabiq and what have you, even though ISIS has been able to really uh, milk it big times in terms Kamdabek is a city that as you well know portrayed as the, the end of the world and this is where somehow the um, the prophet armies would basically uh, triumph over the hordes of infidels and uh, what have you. Uh, the narrative is very very important but in terms we have to keep our eyes on the strategic prize. Uh, the strategic prize has always been Mosul and Iraq. Another round?
0: I think we've run out of time, I'm afraid. I mean, there are lots of hands going up, but we do have to vacate the room at 8 o'clock, I'm afraid. Um, uh, there are so many hands going up, it's, it testifies to the... the book? <laughs> so
1: they, I was going to get should... on to the book.
0: I was going to say, I, I'd like us to, to, you know, we should thank... I
1: mean, they, 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 they can buy the book, they don't have... The... <laughs> you took the words out of my
0: mouth, but um, I was going to say thank you for giving us a glimpse into your, the breadth and depth of your knowledge but if you want the full picture you know where to get it you, you have to, uh, I didn't say buy the book I said read the book there's a difference yeah. yes. but, um, but, uh, so thank you very much I'm sorry we don't have time for more questions